0: The world is changing,
1: truth is vanishing, war is coming. It's been a long time, friend.
0: You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you with that.
1: Objective. What's your ultimate objective?
0: Your life will always matter more to me than my own.
1: None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Daniel, and as always, I am very happy to say that I'm joined by my spy partner, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's a mission I'm delighted to accept. Oh, brilliant. Well, I was hoping you'd say that because it just isn't the same when I go solo. No, it's good to be here. Yes, I'm not Napoleon Solo. <sighs> just to mix up the spy 60s IP there. Smooth. So yes, what are we talking about today, Rob? Today, we are talking about the somewhat portentously named Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We are the seventh instalment of the Mission Impossible franchise, a franchise that started 27 years ago, and I have very clear memories of going to see that first instalment. I think I've actually, this is a rare franchise. that I've seen every instalment of this at the cinema, I just realised. That didn't happen for Harry Potter. That doesn't happen for most... There's always one that slips me by. But this one, yeah, I've seen every single one at the cinema. Were you the same? Uh, no. I think the first one I saw at the cinema was probably Ghost Protocol. Wow, okay. So that was four in. That was 2011? Yeah. Oh, wow. So you didn't see Mission Impossible 3 at the cinema. I'm I'm surprised by that, because that would have been when you were well ensconced into your teens. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it didn't get a full release when I was in Dubai.
0: Yeah, they could be weird about uh, what makes it over and what doesn't. Although I can't think of any reason why... me can't immediately think of any reason why Mission Impossible 3 wouldn't.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it did. But there are times when you just don't get round to seeing something. Anyway, let's move on to Mission Impossible. So yeah, so number seven in the franchise. Uh, this is, I think... Well, I was going to say a rare franchise in terms of it's got better as it's gone along. think that's entirely true i think the number one even though that was a film that when we talked about fallout i said i thought that that film had not age very well i then watched it after you really sang its praises and completely changed my opinion thought i must have had an off day last time i watched it because this is a really good action thriller i mean it's kind of up and down really i suppose for the franchise isn't it in terms of the second one is always everyone says is the weakest one i think that's right it has some big action in it Three, four, and five, I think, were okay, but six really, for me, is the best one. And it's like, wow, what franchise has its best film as number six? But Mission Impossible Fallout, I just thought, was absolutely fantastic. Um, All of them have great moments in it. Sometimes they don't hold together as well as others. But what do you think about that? For
0: me, it's a a toss-up, because I love Fallout. But then again, I think I saw the original Mission Impossible film at a really great time, where... It was able to be, I think it was probably, it's probably the earliest thriller I can remember watching. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. That I've got a very clear memory of. Yeah. And I had, it's one of those that I had on VHS. I can still quote quite large swathes of dialogue from that film. Fallout's probably, yeah, if we go with that being my favourite, Fallout's definitely my second. And the question that our listeners are asking is, where does Dead Reckoning
1: come in? all that? Yeah, indeed, and we will reveal that answer very soon. I think for 3, 4, and 5, they don't completely hang together as consistent great movies. I think 3 is a great movie for the second half. 4 is a great movie up until after the Burj Khalifa. And it's like, well, that's the ending of the film. Why is it going on for another half hour? You can't top that. That was such a great moment. And Five is one that is kind of up and down. It's good that it's not... um, I think it suffers from the fact that the best stunt in the film in Five, when it's on the side of that plane, is the opening to the movie, and it can't really top it. Six just seems to get it just right. It got the script right. It got the action right. There's not a dull scene in that entire movie. But before we get on to what we think of Dead Reckoning, part one, Uh, let's have a look at what the plot is. So going to IMDb, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. Like pretty much every single Mission Impossible film. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? This is the plot of every single Mission Impossible film. So to put some flesh on the bones of this one, the MacGuffin in this film is an AI machine. There's this thing that if it falls into the wrong hands can basically change reality as we know it and there won't be truth anymore and whoever holds it controls the world. And it's up to Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, and his team to find out exactly who's got it there's lots of little mini MacGuffins. There is a key that comes in two different parts. So a bit similar to the Archimedes Dial from The Dial of Destiny, the Indiana Jones film that we talked about last time, that I would argue a little bit better than that one. So there's a key that comes in two parts. They have to go and find these different things. They have to get all the elements to bring it into place. Of course, this is all just to keep the story going while they go through various scrapes and adventures and some real exciting moments. Uh, We have a pretty good cast in there. So we have obviously Mr. Cruz, his team, Ving Rhames as Luther, Simon Pegg as Benji, Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa, the wonderfully named Ilsa Faust, Haley Atwell as Grace, And Vanessa Kirby, who kind of plays all sides as the White Widow. She's an arms dealer. And S.A. Morales as Gabriel, who is a very, very mysterious figure who might not have everyone's best interests at heart. And there's also Pom Clementieff as Paris. She is a manic pixie dream girl gone mad and is quite lively in the movie. She's an assassin. Shea Wiggum's in there as well. Mark Gatiss makes a very, very small um, appearance. We have Carrie Elwes as someone quite high up in the organisation. And there's someone returning, Rob. And uh, could you think who that could be from an earlier Mission Impossible film?
0: I couldn't possibly. You know, if I was just going to make a complete guess, a complete shot in the dark, would it be Henry Zerny as Eugene Kittredge?
1: Well, I'm very glad you said that, because if you couldn't have guessed, I would have been very upset. (laughs) hoo. And I'm sure you would have been upset as well. Daniel, you've never seen me very
0: upset. (laughs) Which is a line they do reference in this film.
1: Yes, indeed. One of the reasons I like talking Mission Impossibles with you is because you love the line. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. (laughs) When you're a kid, there are certain lines that just stick with you. And that's a great line. So, yeah, so we have all these plays in there. As with all Mission Impossible films, it goes, it's a real globe-trotting film. So we go from the deserts of. Is it the Middle East they're in, or is it Egypt? Uh, yeah, it's in the Arabian Desert. So, yeah, it's in, it's in, the, uh, it's in the Middle East. Right, yes. Yeah, so he's doing his Lawrence of Arabia nod there. Uh, we go to America, of course, uh, we go to Italy, um, I think there's Venice in there at some point. Yes, it's a real kind of globe-trotting franchise with emphasis on Europe, so it'll be interesting if they go to the Far East for the next one. Although they did go, I think they went to China in Mission Impossible 3.
0: Well, they, they also go to um, Abu Dhabi in this one.
1: Yes, and with all Mission Impossible films, they obviously went there. I wouldn't imagine there was much use of the volume in this one. That's a bit about the story. So, Rob, what did we think of Dead Reckoning Part 1? I really enjoyed it. I think, for me, it tried
0: to combine the emotionality and stakes of Fallout with the mechanics and spycraft of Rogue Nation. For me, actually, I think my third favourite in the franchise is probably Rogue Nation. And this would come in at number four because I don't think it succeeded in either of those as well as the other film. I don't think the emotion and the stakes were there, or at least the scale was there to the same extent in a full L. And I don't think it quite managed the kind of cross, double cross, as well as Rogue Nation did. But that said, it's unlikely, who knows, that we'll see another action blockbuster as as good as this this year.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that point. Yeah, for me, in terms of where this place is in the franchise, I would say currently it's number three. I put Fallout at number one, the original Mission Impossible at number two, and then this one at number three. I do need to go back to Rogue Nation, though. I only saw Rogue Nation once. I do need to go back, cause I think they're on Sky Movies now, so I will check that out. Actually they're, actually, they're all on Channel 4 at the moment. On 4OD? Yep. Oh well, there we go. We can watch them for free. The reason I place this at number three is because I think that the action in these films, from Fallout onwards, so the last two basically, is the best action that you're going to see, because so much of it is done for real. So I talked about Extraction 2 recently, which is a film that I love. The action there, a lot of it obviously isn't being done for real, because they're impossible shots, there's lots of one-takes, it's like, well, you can't, that can't be real, but it looks amazing. One of the reasons why... I've loved the last two films in the Mission Impossible franchise because so much of it is practical. And yes, there is going to be some CGI in there, but you know that a lot of this has been done for real. And that Tom especially is putting himself into some pretty hair-raising situations for our entertainment.
0: Yeah, it's probably for the best that this is the penultimate film, because otherwise
1: he will die making one of these eventually. Well, that's a good point because is it the penultimate film, or is it just that we're assuming it is because this is part one of two, and this is a franchise that's been going on for so long now that it has to wind up at some point? Has it been confirmed that it's going to end with the next movie? Um, I think so. I could be wrong. It could
0: just be no. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Hmm. Let's try and find out. Let's 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 look at this
1: quickly. No, I maybe it's not. Maybe it's not officially the end. Yeah, I didn't think that it was. Or oh, no, so I didn't think that it being confirmed. But then I think to your reasoning, it's like, well, it's part one of two. Where do you go after that? Particularly as Tom Cruise is currently sixty-one years old, so would be at least sixty-three or four by the time he makes another one. And if he's doing his own stunts, then that's going to be even more dangerous. Apparently, yeah, apparently, Christopher McQuarrie has t- has said that this isn't; these aren't the last ones. And
0: Tom Cruise has expressed an interest in continuing in the role. So, yeah, at some point. Um, <laughs> there will probably be a headline like movie star's body lost in space.
1: <laughs> you know, or burns up attempting Reentry." <laughs> yes. I think you're right. I think actually, but to that point, when we were watching Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, I thought, what would it be like to actually see Harrison Ford try and do some of these stunts? And I think we're going to find out with Tom Cruise in 20 years' time when he's trying to do another Mission Impossible film.
0: Yeah. I And also, I mean, I, I know that there's no limit to inventiveness if they have to keep on kind of making them more dangerous and more impressive even as tom cruise is must be said very slowly subjected to the ravages of age then yeah eventually that you know that the lines are going to cross on that venn diagram oh sorry that not on that venn diagram the lines are going to cross on that uh, on that graph and x will mark the spot where <laughs> Where Tom makes the final big stunt into the great unknown? Yeah, where the, the X will mark the spot where Tom's body impacts having passed through Earth's atmosphere at at, at several times the speed of sound. <laughs> the, yeah, Tom Cruise will be the next extinction level event on this planet.
1: <laughs> Which I think might have been his grand plan the whole time with his franchise. Yeah, he will literally be the the last movie star. Yes, that's right. He he will be a literal movie star. Oh, that's very good. (laughs) Yeah, it really is one of those things where, yeah, you're thinking every single film they're trying to top the previous one. And I have to say, though, I love the action in this film. I had a blast with this movie. I don't think it tops the ending of Fallout at any point. That stuff with the helicopter in Fallout I don't think is beaten here. I don't think it's equaled here, but then again, it was such an amazing action sequence that what they've achieved here is still, to your point, I think what makes it the best blockbuster of the year, or the or the best live-action blockbuster of the year. Because I think that um, across the Spider Verse, I think is a better film, but in terms of live-action blockbuster thrills, I don't think you're going to get better than Dead Reckoning.
0: This film, this film though doesn't doesn't yeah, as you talking about Fallout, doesn't have anything as good as Tom Cruise. Calling Henry Cavill a prick.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. But it does have humour in it, and that's the reason why I really like this film, is because it has an old-fashioned feel to it. The opening, so it opens up with a Russian submarine called the Sevastopol. And anyone who's seen the trailer will know that something not great happens to the submarine. That really reminded me of old school Bond movies like The Spy You Love. Yes.
0: I've literally got I've got that in my notes where it's like, we're going to introduce this the crew of a submarine and then something bad's going to happen. And also, a plot that combines AI, Russia, and submarines. It's like, those are three separate hot-button issues. In all fairness, AI has been in the news, it's been in development for the last couple of years. Uh, Russia, you know, the conflict in Ukraine has been going on for a while now, although I don't know if it was in this film that's in development, but again, Russia makes a good generic baddie. But the fact that they've managed to ha- include a submarine incident in their film a couple of weeks after there's been probably the most famous submarine incident ever yeah recently because i would say that the curse when that oh, happened yeah, that's about true. 20
1: years ago was, was
0: and that was arguably apart from the presence of a child more tragic
1: yes uh but yes i think that the thing is that this film like the bond films used to do would present people's fears and in an entertaining way and then would provide the escapism of thinking that we can handle this that this We'll have a happy ending. The good guys are going to come through. So in this one we have, yes, a threat from Russia. We have AI kind of threatening to take over the world and turn us against each other and uh, completely scramble our minds. And we have the practical filmmaking, the practical stunt work. So in that way, I think that Tom Cruise's new project, his new mission is to champion analogue. Because if you go back to Top Gun Maverick last year, which was a film that I wasn't a huge fan of, there's a whole thing in that about people not being replaced, people not being obsolete yet. We can't just trust the machines to do this. It has to have a person behind the stick. It has to have a human element to it. And analogue being something that is just better than digital. And in this film, there is, yeah, there are parts when people have to go to analogue because of the threat of AI. The older Tom gets, the more he says the old ways seem to be the best ways, which is... <laughs> something that happens to all of us as we get older. I think this is a movie star equivalent to people saying it was better in my day. It was better in my day when you had to wait for something to come on TV. It wasn't just there immediately. And it was better in my day because the music was better. And with Tom, it's like it was better in my day because I was younger. And if only there was the filmmaking technology to capture what I'm doing now back then, I think I would possibly be um, a god. <laughs> So there's lots of different things going on in this film that are quite interesting from a meta level, because I always think that Tom Cruise brings a bit of himself to the Mission Impossible franchise. This seems to be the thing that he, over the years, has become most emotionally tied to, it seems. And when you look back at his work, I mean, he has a really, really varied body of work, but Mission Impossible seems to reflect what he, I think, would like as the ideal of himself. But what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think Ethan Hunt is very much a cipher, we know little about... He's essentially just a vehicle for Tom Cruise to carry the action and for Tom Cruise to do stunts. Yeah. You know, he's the kind of smartest, most accomplished person in the room. And actually, one thing I think, this, as you were saying, this film did get right was the humour. I think I think this, this film's had more incidences of humour than I can remember in... not the, Maybe not the franchise as a whole, because I remember there being some in Ghost Protocol, but certainly a few installments. And in fact, there's one action sequence that kind of leans more heavily on the comedy than anything.
1: Yes, indeed. Would that be the car chase, by any chance? Yes. Yeah, which manages to mix real visual excitement with really wonderfully landed visual gags. And that's why I think it's quite old-fashioned, because it's like, we understand that you want to laugh as well as being thrilled, and we're going to mix that up for you because when you're excited and you're laughing, then, well, that's the kind of thing that's going to leave people leaving the cinema recommending that their friends go and see it, and also provide a really good time for you at the time as well. And, you know, to his credit, Tom Cruise
0: does not mind being the butt of the joke. Yes. His competence is never in question, but sometimes he does just find himself in situations or moments
1: where he's taken aback. Yes, and he does taken aback very well, does Tom. Yeah, there's some really nice moments there where it's like someone has the other hand on him and he then has to try and style it out, but not always in the best way. And that's, I think, why it works, because... I don't know, if you look at Vin Diesel, if you look at The Rock, the humour's always at the expense of someone else that they're encountering and they never seem to want to laugh at themselves that much and that just seems to me to be such a weird decision because it's like, well, you're the movie star, we know that, you're the star of this film. If you can undercut yourself with humour, then that just humanises you a bit more and that's one of the things that Tom Cruise does very well. So what were some of the big set pieces in this film that you enjoyed? Because as we said, the film is... Gossamer in terms of the script, I mean, the script is enough to keep the interest from A to B, but the invention of the incidents they encounter, and also the performances of the cast, because the cast are very good, and they're very good with, as you said, cipher characters. So what were some of the set pieces that you thought were great? I mean, it's probably the climactic one, set aboard the train, which
0: is, you know, I think this is the second podcast consecutively, where we've talked about an action sequence set aboard a train. This one being done with actual practical effects. And I'm a big fan of action films that lay out a geographical space and build the stakes into that. It's a little bit, you know, if you're being um, dismissive, you say, oh, it's a bit like a video game. But in this case, it's in a good way because they have to ne- physically negotiate this space that, yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, critical credit, till we get in the spoilers section. But this, I think it's the specificity of it that works. And obviously, this isn't the first train uh, sequence in Mission Impossible, right? This film has a lot of references, a lot of callbacks to the first film, uh, which is obviously has a, the climactic scene set aboard the Eurostar. Yeah. Although, though, it's interesting, the first film is like, oh, it's the Eurostar. It's the kind of pinnacle of modern travel. And in this, it's a steam engine. It's
1: elegant. It's, you know, refined. It's the Orient
0: Express, isn't it? It's the Orient Express, Indeed.
1: I think you're right. I think they do keep their powder dry for the real spectacle for the end of it. And one of your points there is that there's a really good video essay on YouTube, and I can't think of who it's by now, but they're very they were very famous for doing great video essays. They were the kind of the first YouTube channel to break through in terms of this is what a video essay should look like about a film. And they did one on Jackie Chan, and they talked about how he stages action. And one of the big points was that there are some shots where the action in the shot takes second place to the location because he's setting up where the action's going to move to. I'll put the link into the show notes because it's a really, really good video. Is that Patrick Willems? No, no, it's not. It was um, it was a group. They they called something and they came before Patrick Willems. But I'll pop it into the show notes. Because there was a thing recently. I think
0: Patrick Williams got to go to the Mission Impossible premiere. I think there was almost like there was a campaign for him to go because he's done so many episodes on Mission Impossible. Oh, right. (laughs) And on the franchise. And and because he's kind of like a a major YouTube... On YouTube, I actually actively follow. And uh, yeah, I think he he got to go. There were some photos of him of of what seemed to be the premiere.
1: Sorry, every frame of... Every frame of picture? Every frame of painting. Yeah, that's right. So every frame of painting used to do video essays. Actually, on that point about going to the premiere... So there's a very nice section of the recent episode of the Honeymoon Period podcast. So hello to Mark and Elaine there. And if you want a counterbalance to our views of Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny, then I recommend listening to their episode, because they talk about why they enjoyed it more, and it was a good listen, and it was like, I was kind of jealous at how much they enjoyed it more, because I wish I could, but I just can't. But they talked about how they've got a friend who does an Indiana Jones podcast called Indie Movie, or something like that, uh, called Chris, And Chris went to the premiere for the same reason. He has championed Indiana Jones so much that he was invited to the premiere. And that's always nice when you hear that sort of thing. But yeah, check out their episode to see what it sounds like when someone actually enjoyed Dial of Destiny and talks about the film. Um, But going back to the Orient Express in this film, the way that it sets up space and moves through it, I think, is very, very similar to that Jackie Chan element of how to stage action, particularly as it goes back and forwards. And it's invisible. It's like you don't notice it because, as Jackie Chan said, the audience doesn't recognise the rhythm of an action scene until it's not there. And that's, I think, what is one of the great things about the Mission Impossible action scenes is that you don't notice the rhythm, you don't notice why you can understand it so much because the filmmaking is of such a high level that you are almost subliminally taken in the geography of it. And that's why you always know where you are. And that's something that the John Wick films do well as well, but the John Wick films just have no discipline, it just becomes overwhelming. So yeah, that scene on the train is brilliant. I have to say, there's an earlier scene in an airport. It's not really an action scene. It's more of a suspense sequence in this airport. And that was very good as well, I thought, in terms of how that used the gadgets, but also used kind of ingenuity on the fly to succeed in that mini mission. It's also a good way to introduce the Hayley Abwell character, who's a bit of a rogue, almost like a Catwoman type figure to begin with. And there's some really, really good fight scenes as well. So yeah, I just thought it was really good. And the cast, I mean, were there any standouts in the cast for you? Yeah, I think Haley Atwell
0: brought lightness and humour, as you say, to a role that's quite, you know... Yeah, I would compare it to kind of Anne Hathaway in... Uh, Anne Hathaway's Catwoman in Dark Knight Rises. Yes. And the fact that she's there to essentially complicate the plot, and that can be annoying when you've got a character who just keeps on kind of being a spanner in the works. But, you know, she does it really winningly. Yeah. And great seeing Henry Zerney as Kittredge again, immediately going head-to-head with Tom Cruise. And he's also in the film... Far more than you might expect. It's not a
1: cameo. Yeah, so two things there. So one, I just assumed it was gonna be pretty much what we saw in the trailer would be what we saw of him. Was very happy that uh, that Henry Zerney was in it, as you said, a lot more. And because you'd basically been waiting a lot of your life to see this, how did you feel about the Kittredge scenes? I think they were well handled. I mean, there was
0: still nothing to top the original movie. I I also found found it funny how they gave a lot of voiceover to Kittredge just I think because he's got that kind of wonderful intoning. I mean, I, I did think at points I could have done with a little bit less of the kind of state-of-the-world monologuing. right where it's like yeah can we actually show the AI working rather than just having everybody talk about how dangerous it is you know I'd like to have a bit more show not tell on this one but maybe they're just setting that up for the next film
1: I think they are I think that they are going to unleash a lot more mayhem in the next film on a bit of a global scale because one of the things about this is that it's a big movie and it is a very very big movie but it's actually quite contained and I think that's why it works well like you have the big action sequence of the film is on a train it's not in a city it's not in like a massive building it's on and it's actually on quite an old and quite small train i mean if you think back to bullet train last year that was a bigger train in which to do things this one is quite cramped but i do like those sort of things i think that the action films where it keeps the action quite ground level can sometimes be better than if they're going up in space and you know having a, like a massive battle there or something yeah, I like Kittredge. I thought he was good. I mean, I yeah, always say that, that Rebecca Ferguson is Elsa Fowles. I mean, I, I just think she's great in this. But I, mean, I think that she's great anyway. I mean, you yeah, know, look at her in Doctor Sleep. That's one of the best and scariest performances of recent years. Have you seen any of um, of Silo on Apple TV Plus? I haven't, and I need to. I need to. Well, yeah, I need to subscribe to Apple TV Plus. And at the moment, I'm just reluctant to do that because there's so much else that I need to watch for things I'm already paying for. But I do need to watch that because yeah, she's the lead in it. Is it worth a go? It is. Uh, yeah, I mean, Apple TV's got some good stuff at the moment. Yes, dude. But yeah, but I thought that she was great. I mean, Simon Pegg and Ving Rames just do this stuff now. They, yeah, they're just great at this. But again, it's like the characters are puddle deep, but the quality of the cast and the emotion and humour they bring to it does actually make you believe that these are real people, which I think is absolutely crucial. Just to uh, kick Indiana Jones one more time is like, I just thought that failed entirely there. Even though the cast were given their all, it, it just didn't work. Yeah, so Haley Atwell, I would agree as well. Um, And Vanessa Kirby is, well, yeah, it's always great to see her too. S.I. Morales was an interesting villain. He was the villain of the piece, but a lot of the peril came from things that he instigated more than things that he actually took part in, I thought. What do you think about him as a villain? Yeah, I think essentially the MacGuffin
0: is what they're moving towards, and he's the competition for it. And the. Antagonism between him and Hunt, Ethan, Hunt, is interesting. I think we'll go a bit bit more into that in the spoiler section, especially when you consider apparently the role was originally meant to be played by... Oh, God, why has his name gone out of my head? Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt, which would have been like a very different take on the character. They presumably would not have been able to do
1: what they did. Yeah, indeed. The entire backstory of why Ethan um, and Gabriel, to give him his character name, have such an antagonistic relationship would not have worked in terms of timeline but i liked him i thought he was good and again he kind of because yeah he's a euro villain uh, and he's very very suave and very handsome again that just seemed to go back to bond he was good it'll be interesting to see what happens with this character there's actually one thing in spoilers about his character that i want to talk about but uh yeah we'll get into that so is there anything i would say before spoilers
0: actually yeah the fact that out of all the two parters i've seen this year spider-man across the spider-verse uh, fast x I think this one best stuck the landing, so to speak, in terms of feeling like a complete story of itself. Yes, I would
1: agree with that. I thought that Spider-Verse has an amazing ending, but it's an ending halfway through a story. Leaves you really, really wanting to watch the next one right now. And if the rumours are to be to believe from a recent story that came out about the production of Across the Spider-Verse, there is no way we are getting the final film in March of next year because the other one took so long to make. So, yes, it'll be interesting to see if Sony pushed back that March 2024 date. Yeah, I would say that. I would say this had an ending. It left stuff open for a sequel, but this one had an ending, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I was also going to say that Extraction 2 also has a scene on a train. So the last three blockbusters I've watched have all had major action set pieces set on trains. So the train is really making a comeback. They're all going loco for it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> oh well, that's because it's
0: no it's literally on rails it's a moving set piece that takes you to a to b unless something bad happens it's the easy space to save action on both the interior and the exterior
1: yeah it's essentially it's a moving house yes yeah, so you can't constantly have a moving background which also lends a uh, kineticism to it cool okay then well uh, well we'll do plugs here um just in case people can't stick around for the spoiler section until they've seen the film, in which case thank you and please come back and listen to the spoiler section after you've seen the film, but not before because we are going to give spoilers away. So Rob, internet, if people want to find you, where can they do that?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. If you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter at Problem Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to uh, hear me and Mr. Daniel go in depth on a another film that we very much like, uh, the 1986 cult classic Highlander, we have an entire podcast dedicated to go through that film, scene by scene. Uh, the podcast is called Another Time MacLeod. You can listen to that wherever you listen to this. You can also follow that on Twitter
1: at MacLeod Time, or drop us a Highlander themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com thank you very much and as for me twitter rob underscore a underscore daniel Letterboxed is letterboxd.com slash rob dan if you want to read my writing that's electric dash shadows.com more importantly if you want to follow the podcast that's on twitter at movie robcast it is on instagram at the movie robcast and we should really get on threads as well shouldn't we if you want to send us an email to talk about movies, then you can do that at movierobcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you heard and you want to leave us a star rating and or a review, well, that would be lovely. And you can do that wherever you listen to your podcast. It is always much appreciated and it supports the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. So cheers for listening. Don't listen on after the trailer clip if you haven't seen the film. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Do
0: do 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 do
1: seamless. Okay, you are now in the spoiler section. I'll just say one spoiler that I liked, and then there's a spoiler about something to do with the film that I really didn't like, and actually keeps it from being a five star film for me. So the thing that I really liked is when uh, the Grace character played by Hayley Atwell says, okay, right, so let me get this straight. You're going to change my face to look like the Vanessa Kirby character, the White Widow. We're going to go onto the train together, you and me, Ethan. I'm going to get the second part of the key. We're going to get out and then we're going to find out what this thing does and blah, 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 and, and where it is and stuff. And you see that whole thing play out as if it's happening and then you realise she's just been thinking about this, and it cuts back saying, no, no, I'm just like that's really difficult. That, I thought, was a nice kind of comic spin on the scene from Fallout, where Ethan imagines the heist that's going to happen the next day, and you think that you're watching it. It turns into a complete bloodbath, and he knows that the only way to keep it from turning into a bloodbath is to sabotage the heist without them knowing that he's a double agent because he's joined up with a criminal gang that part really made me laugh because it goes on just long enough that you think that you're watching something actually happening and I thought was very, very smart and just showed how this is a franchise that can still surprise you even though it does the same thing over and over again.
0: Yeah, and that's, it's, it is remarkably adaptable. Again, given that, you know, we've talked about there's a MacGuffin, there's the team with a focus on Cruz. <laughs> I did find it funny how a lot of the action set pieces in this film ended up recalling other action set pieces from films earlier this year. For example... When the car is rolling down the Spanish steps, it's essentially like a smaller scale version of the big one of the big sequences from Fast X, which also goes down the Spanish steps. Yes, indeed. Definitely. And was it the Spanish steps in this film as well? Were they in Rome? Yeah, the the Spanish steps in Rome. Almost like a combination of that sequence in terms of location and vehicle from Fast
1: X with the comedy of Thing Falls Down Steps from John Wick Chapter 4. Yes, indeed, it was an element of that, I and mean, yeah, because I'm so old, it also threw me back to uh, to Roger Moore and Barbara back in The Spy You Love Me. But yeah, you're right, there was an element of John Wick falling down the steps as well. It does bring in a lot of different action movie beats, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, we've already talked about the sequence of all the train and Mission Impossible, and sorry, and uh, Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny. I really liked, yeah, again, how the train goes off the cliff and they've got to climb their way back up. That actually made me think more of the game version, the original game of Uncharted, in terms of the having to kind of clamber up from one ledge to another and avoiding obstacles. And Inception, of course, as well, where where the moments where gravity freaks out because of the, uh, the kind of forces that are acting on them.
1: Yeah, that ending on the train when it's gone off the cliff and things are falling and they seem to be floating at points is like, oh, wow, you found out how to do Inception action outside of a fantasy setting. That's very clever. To go back to the car chase, I love that little visual gag where the car rolls down the steps and then when it rights itself, wheels down, they've swapped places and she's behind the (laughs) wheel of the car again. This, to your point, knows how to have a sense of humour and knows how to maybe undercut the action hero. I didn't talk about Tom Cruise that much in the main part of the show, so, I mean, he's just great at this stuff, isn't he? And his big moment is when he goes off the cliff on the bike. I don't want to talk about that until this particular section, because... Although you think you've seen it, you haven't seen it. When it's in the context of the film, because, of course, we saw a 10-minute extended promo before Avatar about how they set that stunt up, and then you saw some of the stunt happen. he did it about six or seven times that day to get it right. (laughs) And there's something quite sublime about just how high up he is and the fact that it's him doing it. But again, then it cuts in to him acting as it's happening. And I kind of presumed... Either that's that was taken with him falling or it's in one of those things where he's in like a massive wind tunnel or something because his face is really really blowing and he isn't calm and collected, he's saying, I'm trying to get onto a train, I'm trying to get onto a train and I'm plummeting and it's all very funny because uh, it's so preposterous what he's doing. I kind of laughed out loud at that point because it was so exciting, such a sublime image and then it was undercut by him having that close up and he realised he's not as in control of the situation as he seems.
0: Yeah. And again, that's having character moments in action sequences. Yeah. Which is probably, you know, made simpler when you've got your leading person doing the stunts themselves. Yeah. (laughs) And are willing to do it over
1: and over again. What do you think the insurance is on him? Well, he was asked that in Mission Impossible 2 when it was hanging off that rock in Australia and he said, you know what? I didn't ask what the insurance was. And it's like, yeah, you're a producer on this film. You definitely were interested to see how much your life was worth. Actually, the insurance might not be that high because he has so much experience with this stuff. You know, he did a halo jump in the last film for real. I would imagine he's often jumping out of planes and parachuting and flying planes. So while there would be probably an enhanced insurance policy, because he's so good at this stuff and can obviously do it and he's a professional, the filmmakers might be able to argue, no, he's not being put at risk. Um, And we have a friend who knows someone who was in the stunts team on this film and she said it was uh, that according to the stunt crew, this was the safest film they'd ever worked on. I think there's a huge amount of risk assessment and research that goes into how to achieve these stunts to keep everything very safe. Unless I forget Tom Cruise had that meltdown because it was made during COVID. It had to stop a few times in COVID. And there were people gathered around a monitor looking at something and they weren't social distancing. And he was recorded having a real meltdown at them, um, which he was kind of slightly criticized for. And I thought, well, no, it's that's right. that you, you are trying to make a film in lockdown, really. I mean. Yeah, they got permission to make the film, but if people don't social distance, if one person gets COVID at the time, then that would have been game over for the film until they could prove that everyone is clear, which would have been another two weeks where they couldn't do anything. So I thought that just showed how dedicated he is to uh, to making the film, to making sure everyone can still get paid and stuff like that. But yeah, it's like guys, if we
0: if we get if we get shut down, I have to go back to throwing myself off cliffs as a hobby. Yes,
1: no one sees me. <laughs> I also love how these films open and they're a Tom Cruise production. Again, it goes back to that point, this is the franchise that resonates with him most. Jack Reacher didn't really do it in the end, although the first Jack Reacher film is great. And friend of the podcast and frequent contributor Ian Bird watched Jack Reacher, it's great. He's just had a weekend of me telling him to do that. Also, the opening credits to this film were very much like No Time to Die in terms of they came in 25 minutes into this movie.
0: Yeah, you kind of forget they haven't happened, and then you go, "Oh, okay. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay, we are. What? Why not? Okay, fine. Sure." I did think that. I thought, really, the opening credits now because it's twenty-five minutes in, and that seemed very, very no time to die. It did interrupt things, but not for very long. Yeah. So, any other spoilers for you? Um,
0: I like again. I liked the AI. I liked when they kind of introduce it, and you they're in that they're at that party, and you find out like the AI is present. Hmm. That was great. Again, I would like to have seen a bit more of, because if it is, you know, it's it's a computer system that's gained consciousness, I would like to understand it as a character, though I guess you can't really do too much on that without going full sci-fi.
1: Yes. And on that point, the S.A. Morales character, Gabriel, the baddie, acted very, very synthetic in this movie. I didn't want to say it, obviously, because I think it's a spoiler for what I'm going to say, and it, it's not revealed in the film that this is the case, but... He seemed very synthetic, and I'm really hoping that he doesn't turn out to be a synthetic human that the AI has created. But there are a few things that he said, like when he goes in to see that Italian policeman who's corrupt and knows everything about him. Well, the AI has probably told him that, uh, maybe, but he seems to be talking about it as if it's knowledge that only he has. And someone says, who are you? And he kind of says something like, I have many, many different names, which, of course, also uh, links him to the devil. But it's like, he seems to be acting unhuman or inhuman and synthetic and it's please don't be a synthetic person in the next film because that i think would tip this too far into sci-fi because then you're in westworld territory and it's like no 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 you don't do that but morales's performance style i thought really suggested that he was something like a replicant but what did you think
0: uh i didn't get that i just got more kind of generic sorry not generic someone sorry. so more sort of just general in command villain right I'm intrigued to find out what the relationship is between him and Ethan. I did like how the uh, in the uh, the flashbacks that we got to him murdering Ethan's female friend from before he joined the IMF, we never saw Tom Cruise's face because he clearly doesn't trust de-aging technology.
1: Yes, and that again goes back to something recent, obviously, Indiana Jones. Yes, you see the profile. They can make the profile look a bit younger. But yeah, I think Tom knew, no, 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 no. Particularly as I think for SA Morales, they were using footage from another film. That did not look like de-aging. That looked like they'd got footage of him as a younger man. And it's like, well, if you put that against Tom Cruise, it's just not going to work. And I think you're right. I think that Tom Cruise realised not quite there yet in terms of the de-aging. And as Indiana Jones proved, it still looks weird, particularly when the eyes are glinting as much as they are, which is a great point you made last time.
0: Yeah, I also think, you yeah, know, sorry, and this this might be my might being unfair. There might even
1: be like a degree of
0: vanity from Tom Cruise who was like, Whenever you see a photo of him in the film, like the one they had, they hand out in those dossiers, it's always one for him, like, I don't know, Circa Mission Impossible 2? And it's like, why do we ha- why do we not have an updated photo? He's a fucking employee.
1: It did seem like that. He had the long hair, he was um clearly twenty years younger, at least it was yeah, I thought that. It's like, thought oh, that's not Tom Cruise now, is it? Yes, it's like, well maybe they don't want to have a recent photo because he's an active agent, but it did seem a bit of look what a golden god I once was. But you're still an impressive man, now, Tom. Yeah, the Hayley Atwell character. I thought the yeah, you weren't sure what side she was on again. That seems like the Helena character from Dial of Destiny, but you kind of know ultimately she's going to be on the side of the angels. The thing that really, really bothered me about this film, and I think keeps it from being a five-star movie, is that they killed off the Rebecca Ferguson character. She was introducing five, wasn't she? She was introducing Rogue Nation. Yes. She's been in the last two, so this is her third film that she's in. And as soon as I saw Hayley Atwell in the trailer and saw that Hayley Atwell was kind of getting billed so high, I just knew that Rebecca Ferguson's character was going to die. And I spent the whole film thinking, please don't kill her off. Please have her do something. And they actually fake out at the beginning by seeming as if she has been killed off. Then it turns out that she hasn't. So I thought, well, that's good that they did that. And then it's like, no, psych, we didn't kill her off. But then I'm thinking, well, she'll never leave the team voluntarily, even if she is forced to because she's facing a criminal charge or something. She won't. So the only way that she's going to leave this is if she dies. But maybe not. Please think of a way out of this where you don't have to kill her off just to bring in another beautiful woman for Tom Cruise to be with. But they do kill her off. They do kill off the Ilse Faust character. And it's a good sword fight and that is the one time I think apart from when the Gabriel character the villain faces off against Tom Cruise that he really gets his hands dirty and I think they, they did that to bring more gravitas to her death and it is a good sword fight they have and it's clearly them doing it as well and there's some really good stuff there where they obviously rehearse the choreography of that very well because they look like trained assassins the fluidity of their movement is great and it's all in Venice I think it is at that point and it's all on that bridge and it's very very misty Looks gorgeous. It's a really, really good action scene, but I spent the whole thing thinking, don't kill her off, don't kill her Well, you've killed her off. Okay, right. There's a touch of that that I think is kind of fridging, which is you know what superhero films do when it's, well, I need to kill off the uh, woman so that the male hero feels a bit sad for a bit and has another impetus to go and get the baddie. The character character's given more of a backstory here than typically for a fridged character, but not much really because the characters are very thin. And I felt that it really was because she'd been in two films. It was time to bring in another pretty face. And so Hayley Atwell takes over. And that left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, to be honest. I thought they also was a great character because of what Rebecca Ferguson brought to the role. And it just seemed mean spirited that she was killed off. But what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I was really hoping when they brought in the Hayley Atwell character that it wasn't gonna be one in, one out. And it really was, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: We don't have space in this film for two women <laughs> well not two women on the side of the angels tom could only have one in his team at any one time and he really was one of those things where it's like I, I know that you kill off a member of the team because it then adds real stakes and no one is safe but it's like well i never for a moment thought that simon pegg or ving rames's characters were gonna die in this film but as soon as i saw hayley atwell in the trailer i thought please don't kill off rebecca ferguson And they did. So I think it's obvious there that the one-in-one-out only applies to female characters and that Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg are in this franchise for the duration. I think that is a problem with the film. I think that is a flaw with the film that it did that. It's a testament to how good and exciting the film is that that happens at the end of the second act and it's still a great film and you still are thrilled by the third act because the momentum just keeps going and going and going. But it is a lazy trope and the film did do it and I think it could have done something better there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess um, Pom Clarence's character
1: might- is sticking around. Yeah, she's the manic pixie dream girl psycho who, when she gets betrayed, then goes over to the side of the angels a little bit. I thought it was good, yeah, that she that they say, we've got a very, very weak pulse at the end, so she's going to come back and presumably team up with Ethan's team, the IMF. And it was, yeah, that was good, but it was like, okay, so you let one of the women live. <laughs> so progressive. But I was glad that she was alive at the end of the movie because it's like, well, you have been great. And I love that scene when she's doing the demolition derby in that big armoured truck when she's chasing the little Fiat that Ethan and Grace are in that was great and the scene in the alley with her is great as well but she never gets a really really fantastic big action moment so hoping that they've saved that for the next movie so yeah I was glad they didn't kill her off um, and Shay Wiggum is always great and with Shay Wiggum it was a bit of an Agent Carter reunion because he's Hayley Atwell's boss in the first season of Agent Carter so that was nice seeing that and yeah what is going to be next I think is going to go quite big for the next one if it's because they might think, well, this could be the last one. We just don't want to announce it until the film is is due for release. So maybe part two will be the last of uh, the Mission Impossible films, and they're going to go absolutely mad in it. But they have to go into space at some point, right? I mean, I don't think Tom Cruise will will be happy until this franchise goes into space for real.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems like the next step. I mean, they have to go to the sub, you know, which I'm sure Tom Cruise will try and free dive in the Arctic. Yeah, I and mean, where haven't they been? They haven't been to the top of Everest. I haven't really been underwater. you very true about that one. They will go underwater. I mean, yeah, they've got to go underwater because they've done high. Like you've got things where you can either go, you can either go up high, down low, or really, really fast.
1: Yeah, he hasn't jumped into an active volcano yet. <laughs> Maybe he will. Tom versus the volcano. I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> so, was there anything else with the film before we sign
0: off? No, other than to say, I enjoyed that. Actually, this is it was one of three films I've seen recently, and one of three good films I've seen recently. Yeah, just to touch very briefly on it, uh, I won't talk about them particularly, but I also saw Past Lives and Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, both of which were worth a look.
1: Okay, cool. Well, I think we'll need to do a round-up episode at some point, and I think our next episode is going to be a Barbie and Oppenheimer double, together at last. That would be a big one, but yeah, we should do an episode where we just round up some of the gems we've seen recently. Yeah, that flaw aside with the Ilsa character and killing her off which is a flaw and it's a big flaw but that aside I had a blast with this movie and I was so happy that it was as good as I was hoping it would be and yeah I think you're right I think it is going to be the blockbuster or the uh, live action blockbuster of the summer Let Oppenheimer surprises us all but it doesn't seem to be that sort of film so yes I would strongly recommend that you go and see this one and yeah we've got a year to wait until part two yes indeed and I think that, that one will come out next year And we've got Dune part two at the end of this year. So my God, the parts are just uh, stacking up. right then. Well, thank you very much, Rob, for that wonderful chat. And thank you very much, Rob. And thank you very much for listening. And we will be back with you next time with the big bang of Oppenheimer and the big B of Barbie.